those of you who know me well, I, I, I enjoy uh, reading American history and American religion. Right now I'm reading the Transcendentalists, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and uh, Henry David Thoreau, um, Margaret Fuller. Uh, they've left us some of the most beautiful poetry in American history. They also had some very unique views about God. And I love reading their, their writings because transcendentalists believe that we find God in nature. And if anyone appreciated the beauty that is around us, it's Emerson and Thoreau. The, the problem with their views is that they believe that God is found supremely in nature by looking into ourselves. And they believe that Jesus Christ was simply a man who lived divinely, as what they would say. He was not God. He was not a divine human. He was just simply the most human human that ever lived. And my, my critique of transcendentalists like Emerson and Thoreau is not that their poetry isn't beautiful. It's not that I don't think that we can find God in nature. It's that... As Christians, as those who believe this book, we believe that the heavens declare the glory of God. We believe that all these trees are created by God to shine forth His beauty and His glory and His power. That the mountains in North Georgia and that the coast to East Georgia, that the plains in South Georgia, all those things God has made to tell us that he's there, to tell us that he's good, to tell us that he's powerful. But there was someone named Jesus Christ who was not just a man. He is both fully God and fully man. And that the best picture we can come with to understand who God is and how God is is by looking at Jesus Christ because Jesus is God's own son. That's a Christian faith. That's, that's not just because um, we're... We think that everyone else has got it wrong and that we need to be the ones who are right. It's that God has sent His own Son and that God gave us one way and that is through Jesus Christ. When we say that Jesus is the only way, we're not being bigots. We're as if we're running into a burning building and we're telling people there is one door. The person who tells you how to get out of a fire isn't a bigot. He's a friend. When God says, my own son, he's saying, what the mountains declare, what the trees sing, what the sky gives you every day, you can focus in and see perfectly in Jesus. The trees can't save. I love Emerson and Thoreau's poetry. But they fell so short in seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. Jesus Christ lives. He is God. He is King. He intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father so that when I pray, God hears me. I want to ask the men here this morning a couple questions. One, raise your hand, men, if you've ever heard the phrase, happy wife, happy life. Raise your hand. I don't know why that's funny. <laughs> Raise your hand, men, if you found this principle to be true. <laughs> Wise people.
people here. <laughs> Raise your hand if you haven't found... No, don't. <laughs> don't do that. I'll, I'll, I'll gladly take you back. The women won't, so... Um, after seven years of marriage, I can personally attest that this is a fact. It is true. And the reason it's true is because it's based on one assumption that we all make, and that is that husband and wife are a team. You can't quit the team. Once you're on, you're on. And she's usually the coach. <laughs> Whatever she experiences, you experience. Whatever she feels, you feel. Whatever she endures, you're enduring as well. It is a one flesh un union, as we saw many months ago, Genesis 2, 2, 4, and the two shall become one flesh. That means that husband and wife aren't just a team, they're an organic unit. Common experience, common sense teaches us that. This means two things. One, the joy of one spouse typically spills over and becomes the joy of another, of the other. It also means that the sin of one spouse typically invites the sin of the other. This is how one flesh union works. This is why Paul said no one ever hated his own flesh. If we look back to the garden, who ruled the earth? Adam and Eve. If we look back to the garden, who sinned against God? Adam and Eve. Now they were both responsible for their own sin, but their marriage was so close and intimate that what one did in their heart naturally affected the other. I think we have gotten away from that. We want marriage. We want the, the, the fairy tale wedding. We think marriages are nice, but if you can tell now, popular culture wants to kind of distance its thing. We, we like the idea of marriage, but we kind of want to step away from the one flesh union. And we make the things up called prenups, which means I, I want to be in, but I want to leave if I need to. That's not how marriage works. Now keep this in mind when we read this passage this morning. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. If you have a Bible, if you don't, it'll be up here on the screen. Because what you're going to be tempted to, maybe, what you might be tempted when you read this to think is, well, I mean, this is her fault. It's not his fault. Or this is his fault. It's not her fault. Or if she had done this, there would not have been this. But here's the, the problem. Both sinned. We, this, isn't, this, this passage we're getting ready to read, this isn't a ball of yarn that you're supposed to find the end of the sin. Both are sinning. And the reason is the way God has constructed their one flesh union. Here's the gospel before we read. Whereas Adam and Eve sinfully, were sinfully divided and blamed one another, and Abram and Sarai aided and abetted one another's sin, Jesus Christ, in his great love, has come to receive our guilt, and to unite the church to himself in an eternally glorious wedding in the new heavens and the new earth. So when we, when we, when we read about Abram and Sarai, we can't help but think about the heavenly union perfected in Jesus Christ. So if you'll find Genesis chapter 16, if you'll stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Moses writes, 
Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived... She looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, the, ser the servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction." He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer La... I don't even know how that's pronounced. <laughs> it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray. Father, we are children of the promise. We are here because Abram believed. But Father, Abram was both a man of faith and a man of sin. Father, we, as all here, are people of faith, and people of sin. Father, show us this morning our sin, how we can be prone to unbelief, how we can be prone to impatience, how we can be prone to selfishness and contempt. And Father, call us back to your promises that you have made to us in Jesus Christ. Call us back to the gospel which says that if we believe in Jesus, we shall be counted righteous. And all these things we ask in your precious son's name. Amen. You can be seated. Here's what I'm trying to say this morning. While clinging to faith to the promises of God, both Sarai and Abram, in a moment of impatience and selfish unbelief, chose to execute God's plan on their own terms and in their own timing, instead of waiting on the living God in faith. I've entitled this sermon this morning, Getting Ahead of God, because that's exactly what happens when Sarai and Abram hatch this plan. But let's give credit where credit's due first. Sarai believes God's promises. If she didn't believe in the promise, she wouldn't be trying to hatch her scheme to execute the promise. Sarai believes that Abram will have a son. Who will be his heir? We've got to give her props there. She believes it, she, she believes it so much 
that she's willing to sin to get it. She just wants it to be her heir. She wants it to happen her way. Her way. Sarai believes God's promises. She's just not willing to wait on God to fulfill them. Look at verse 2. I'll just read it. Now, then Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Just like that. Sarai's unbelief has become Abram's unbelief. Very similar to Adam and Eve in some ways. Most scholars believe that the practice of polygamy certainly predated this couple. But that doesn't mean that it was the Lord's will. This is sin. God created man and woman in Genesis chapter 2 to be one flesh. Marriage was instituted in the garden, but Sarah and Abram are willing to violate that union in order to receive God's promises when they want it. What happens next is kind of like a soap opera in the ancient Near Eastern culture. Here's what happens. Sarah refuses to wait on God and suggests Abram be with another woman. Abraham consents. Abram Sarai gives Abram her servant Hagar. Abram commits adultery with Hagar. Sarai becomes jealous of Hagar. Sarai blames her husband. Sarai lies with Hagar, having lies about Hagar, having contempt for her. Sarai calls down judgment upon Hagar. Abram lets Sarai mistreat Hagar. That's the man of faith and his wife. That's one big happy family. That's the father and the mother of the Jewish nation. One big sinful jumbled mess. Sarai's sin and Abram's sin. This is just like the, the, the Garden of Eden. Its sin may start with one, but it doesn't end there. And we're not supposed to go, well, see, if it's the woman's fault, it wouldn't have been Abram's fault had it not been for her. That's not what we're supposed to do here. What we're supposed to see is that both of these people are entangled in controversy now and in really shameful sin. Now you can see why in Genesis chapter 15, God goes to all that trouble to make us understand that when Abram believes, it is counted what? As righteousness. Why? Because Abram is not righteous. Sarai is not righteous. They're sinners. Now, when they believe in God, God is covering all these sins... God is covering every single one of those sins in Christ by virtue of Abram believing in God. This is why happy wife, happy life is true. But it, it falls short of it. Simply making your spouse happy is not the reason God created marriage, and it's not always wise. Sometimes what makes sinners happy is what? Their sin. We have to remember this. God created marriage, not for fleshly gratification, but to give an earthly demonstration of the loving union between Christ and His church. So I, I, would, I would say it like this. Here's, here's how I would say it. Holy wife, holy life. Godly husband, godly marriage. I'm going to try, if I might, to get Abram and Sarah out of this. I'm sorry, i got to call her Sarah. I'm going to keep ripping up her name. I'm going to try three excuses to try to get these people out of the horrendous thing that they're doing and see if any of these three fly. So bear with me. I'm going to give three excuses that people might give today to get people to, to excuse their bad behavior. Here's number one. 
Well, Abram just had sex with Hagar because his wife wanted him to. Can't be called infidelity if he's doing what his wife wants. That might be an excuse that somebody could use. Well, here's the thing. Marital faithfulness is not simply about doing what your spouse says. Marital faithfulness is about faithfully portraying the gospel to your spouse despite what they say or do. So Abram is not doing that. His faithfulness isn't dependent on her. His faithfulness is dependent on who? God. Here's another one. Well, I mean, Sarai has a right to be angry. Women want to be mothers, okay? So she has a little right because God's promised her these things. I mean, what's she supposed to do? All women are called to be moms, right? No. They could adopt. Women don't have the right to be mothers. They have the privilege to be mothers. And in light of what God's doing with them, God adopting them into His family, it should be perfectly clear that adoption is a viable option for them if they really want kids. Number three. Well, you know how women get. Okay? Sarah's just blowing off steam. Okay? He just needs to listen to his wife and shut up. He needs to just let her rant and then go about his business. Well, see, I think Abram has a responsibility to remind Sarah of the promises that God has made to them. It's, God, it's Abram's responsibility to be the, be the head of the household, not to domineer over his wife. Being, being the head of the household means caring for her and comforting her and reminding her of God's promises when she forgets them. When I say that I have authority over my wife in my home, that doesn't mean that I am worth more. It doesn't mean I have more value. It means that I have the added responsibility that when we go through hard times in our marriage, being the man in the home means stepping up and reminding my wife of the grace of God. It means stepping up in the home and serving her and reminding her of the love of Jesus. It means constantly being there to embody the grace and the kindness and the comfort of our God. It is not a husband's job to simply capitulate to his wife's every whim. It is not a husband's job to essentially be a punching bag, although sometimes you need to be. It's not a wife's job to simply support your husband no matter his sin. Rather, a husband and a wife are co-heirs of God's kingdom. Here we go. Male and female believers are co-heirs of God's kingdom. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Abram should have given his wife grace like God was giving them. And Abram should have given his wife truth just like God was giving them. This is why a lot of times I think God that my wife is not a yes woman. My wife doesn't agree with me, she'll just let me know. She does it really frequently, actually. Um, but she's also not a dictator. I mean, she rules the roost when she needs to, but my wife is first and foremost a co-heir with me. You know, it's, it's weird in some ways, but I think we should all think of it like this. My, I have two children and a wife. I have to conduct my home in such a way that I know one day I'm preparing my family so that my wife is a sister in Christ in heaven and my children are my brother and sister in Christ in heaven. 
My wife is a co-heir, and my children are souls with me. So when my wife is down and discouraged and having a bad day, who swoops in to remind her of the promises that God has made for us in Christ? You're, you're a child of God. You're a crowned princess. God loves you so much, there's nothing you could do that he would ever abandon you. God has stayed with us this long, honey. There are times in our marriages as friends, as family, as spouses, we have to be able to go and lean on our co-heirs and remind each other in the church of the promises that God has made because I promise you, you will forget them this week. You know what I think is lacking in this story is Genesis chapter 16 is, is prayer. No one's praying. The only two times that God is mentioned in the first six verses, Sarai is speaking of God and then she's saying God will judge Hagar. But she's never actually talking to God. Prayer is how we know this. Here's, here's, here's what prayer is about. Prayer is how we know that we're waiting on the Lord and not get, waiting to get what we want. Prayer is how we know that God is in our waiting and that we place God as Lord of our lives. Verse 2, go into my servant that I can obtain children by her. Here's, here's, Sarah is thinking more about reward and less about the righteousness of God. I had a meeting two weeks ago with some church planners in Midtown. Raise your hand if you've been in Midtown. Okay, it's really high rise, some of it I think. Nothing like us. Good old Oxford. But they meet in John Marshall Law School. And they came to church one day, and John Marshall had a for sale sign outside of where they meet. And they were like, what's up? And they're like, oh, we're selling this building. And they're like, oh, so do we need to leave? And they're like, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I went, whoa, how, how long did you have? He's like, you only had a, you know, two or three months. I was like, what are you doing? He said, well, we had two, they had two or three weeks left in a church like six blocks away, old Baptist stone church sold their building to M28. And now they have a building. And he's like, well, you know, it's not all, you know, it wasn't all glamorous. I'm like, how's that? He's like, well, you know, a lot of our people, we had to make sure our people liked meeting in an old church with stained glass windows. I was like, for them. <laughs> Carrying your cross, I guess. They're like, yeah, well, I mean, we're millennials, you know, we're not, you know, some of them don't like old churches, you know. I'm like, yeah, the, the stone really puts them off there. Um, and then the other, the other pastor, he stepped in, and I, I made a comment. I said, uh, just like that, God just fixed it. Just, you know, I'm kind of, because I'm kind of like, oh, tell me more about how you nailed this big, church building um, and he was like God just just gave us this church I mean what we weren't really even looking for it until they they knew we were basically long story short it was a miracle and then the other pastor stepped in he says now don't you think for a, a second that it was just plopped in our lap he's like don't think for a second that we weren't praying day and night for this church he said, I, I don't, he goes, I, he goes, he goes Matt, he, Matt told a good story. He's like, what he left out was we were on our hands and knees every day praying that God would create a way. 
I don't think that's what Sarai was doing. I was convicted too, because instead of this passage opening up with, God has prevented me from blank, therefore I must blank, what she should have said was, God has made a covenant with me, and God is faithful, therefore I will wait on the Lord. Here's what Proverbs has to say. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the minds of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Sarai and Abram weren't called to devise their own plans without going to God in prayer. They were called to submit to the will of God in their lives and to seek Him first. Uh, Kelly and I have been convicted lately in our marriage that we don't pray enough. Therefore, Kelly and I recently, in the last couple weeks, have kind of had a revival of prayer in the Todd home. And I'll tell you this, I feel closer with my wife in my home right now than I ever have in my life. Just because Kelly and I recommitted to praying with one another intentionally. Not just around the table, not just with the kids. Because we've realized that when we pray together, it spurs us on to seek after God individually. It knits me to her and her to me and us to God. And it's funny that we've start, once we've started praying, I'm not as impatient. I'm not as, I don't have a spirit like Sarah where it's like, when's this going to happen? Or why didn't God give me this? And it's more of a thank you, God, for all that I have. Too many times in my life, and I, I don't want to, I make fun of myself enough behind this pulpit, so but just so you know I'm not bragging on myself, there have been too many times in my life where I was kind of like Sarah. I was just fed up with God not giving me what I wanted. And instead of praying, I just complained that I wasn't getting it. And what I think is remarkable in this passage is the kindness and the patience of God. God is attentive to the cries of Hagar. Let's not forget about Hagar now. Poor Hagar. He doesn't forget her, verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. The Lord listens to her. This is a remarkable verse. God listens to her affliction. God is faithful and patient. You know, I was reading this passage, and I was thinking, If I'm Hagar, if I'm Hagar, I'm going to put myself in her shoes for a second. I'd be thinking, these are the people God made his covenant with. These are the people. These are the people God is going to be kind with and going to make a great nation. These are the people that they're going to be, a, the sky is going to be littered with more of their offspring than the stars. If I'm Hagar, I'm like, I've had enough with whoever your God is. I'm going to find another one. These are the people of faith. These are the people who are going to be counted righteous. This backstabbing husband and this conniving woman. If I'm reading this passage through a 21st century lens, it seems like Abram and Sarah are very, 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 very unworthy of God's love. If I'm reading this passage right, they don't deserve the covenant. They don't deserve to be made a great nation. They don't deserve a lick of what God gives them. And friends, that is the point. God's covenant with His people is by His grace alone. 
Abram and Sarah are like everyone else on earth. They're sinners, and God has chosen them, not because of their goodness, but because of His. If I'm Hagar, I'm looking, I'm looking at Abram and Sarah like a bunch of Baptist Pharisees who walk out of the church building and got, got all religious and got all their blessings from God and then didn't have time for anybody. If I'm looking at Abram and Sarah, I'm looking at them kind of like some fundamentalist hypocrites who went to church and got all of God's good stuff and then, then treated people like dirt. That's how I'm looking at those people. And the point of the passage, though, is not to try to find someone who deserves God's love. The point of this passage this morning is to know that nobody deserves God's love. Even in their sin, even in their weakness, even in their contempt, God will remain faithful to Abram, not because of Abram's goodness, but because of God's. And that's what faith is. Here's the, here's the point I want to make this morning. Faith, let's go, faith isn't living as if we're trying to give God a reason to love us. Faith is living as if there's no earthly reason why God should ever love us and still trusting in His abundant grace that saves the worst of sinners. At the end of the day, Abram and Sarah are not good people, and neither are we. No one in this room is good. That's what you don't hear a lot in church, is it? No one in this room right now is inherently good enough to receive the grace of God. Nobody. Don't walk out this door thinking that you've got to have a good week for you to come back today, or the next day, or next Sunday... Church is not for us to be patted on the back like we did a good job and we earned God's love. It's for the sinners to walk in and go, I didn't earn it today, I won't earn it tomorrow, I won't earn it till next week. I need Jesus Christ's blood as much tomorrow as I did ten years ago. It's for us to come around and go, where are the good people at? And if you're not, where do I sit? Because by faith in Jesus, we've been washed by His blood. We've been clothed in righteousness. We've been forgiven. We're now treated by God as if we had obeyed. We're given the front seat at the banquet. We've been given a new family. We've been given new hearts by the Holy Spirit. And God calls us good when we're not. And if that doesn't humble you, you're not doing it right. This morning... Let's remember that God listens to us and He also sees us. I don't like that God sees me for who I am, but I'm really glad He listens. Because I am a sinner now and I know it now more than I ever did, but I also know that when I believe in Jesus, God counts me righteous even though I'm not. And I guarantee you after Genesis 16, Abram's going... What about that righteousness again? Because I need it. This morning I want to plead to anyone, like, like Ken said so eloquently this morning, if you haven't placed your trust in the blood of Jesus to save you, don't say the prayer mindlessly. Let's not get our religiosity going this morning and do something so we can earn God. Let's go as if we're beggars to God and saying, I have no righteousness of my own. My life is filthy rags. I dress well. I talk well. But on the inside, I have a darkened heart. I need to be washed. I need to be remade. I need to be reborn. I need Jesus. 
That is the reason Jesus came. It's the reason there's faith. It's the reason we have a hope. And that's the reason we come to church. There is no room for self-righteousness before the throne of God. Only the righteousness of Christ. If you haven't, if you haven't pleaded with Jesus for that righteousness, I invite you this morning to do so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your abundant mercy. Thank you for sparing sinners like Abram and Sarah. Thank you for sparing sinners like me. These conniving, unbelieving, impatient, selfish people, they did something as simple as believe in your word and you saved them. And Father, you'll save anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Father, you're good and we are not. You are mighty and holy and righteous and we are not. And that's why we believe you and not in ourselves. And all these things we ask in your son's name. Amen.